Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. Uh, today is a refilming of our androgen sensitivity podcast. Um, we'll include an outtake from the original there because I don't think we could replicate the reactions. And for those that stay tuned until the end, you will get to enjoy that. Um, but we've got a little bit of a graphic here to get us started. So we've got your, your old school endocrinologist that just says, hey, uh, we want to test and see if you have androgen insensitivity. Um, so just take this one straw for a few days. We'll see what happens. Hmm. That sounds awfully nice. What could be better than that? Well, maybe a more well-informed modern clinician who says, how about we get a genetic test to see how sensitive you are to androgens? But CAG repeats. But you don't get any stenozolol with that? No stenozolol required or mm. included, fortunately yeah. or unfortunately, <laughs> depending on your, your take. Yeah. Um, also, are we talking about CAG repeats? I thought you said we were going to tell people how to get a a higher dose of their testosterone prescription. Exactly. CAG repeats are your gateway or your bridge to a higher TRT dose. So uh, if you have high CAG repeats, does that mean you get a higher dose of testosterone because you're less sensitive? Yes. But what happens if you have lower CAG repeats? Do you decrease that person's dose? Well, there's actually a perfect formula for this. Um, you take your CAG repeat and then you multiply it by 100, and that should be your total testosterone level. Interesting. That hmm. is a joke, by the way. Do not actually. I'm, do I'm that. trying to. I'm trying to think of some different combinations, like uh, 30. 3,000 total testosterone nanograms yeah. per deciliter. You will definitely feel your testosterone then. Yeah, that, uh, I think I know of some clinics that might use that formula. Um, but in all seriousness, um, this is a test that uh, hopefully by the time that we publish this, we have this available on our tests on, on our website that you can order, gillettehealth.com, probably slash labs or something like that. We'll I think that's link. our URL. Yeah, yeah, we'll put a link. As usual, we're better clinicians than businessmen, but we have made an effort to start letting people know that we have a website and that we yes. have labs on there as well. So if your doctor doesn't know what a CAG repeat is, uh, have them watch this podcast. We appreciate that. Yep. If your doctor does not know the difference between different estradiol tests or even uh, the difference between estradiol and other estrogens, then have him or her go to our website and see what we order for someone who would have a low estradiol level or a high estradiol level, et cetera. Yeah, good info. So if we take a step back in time here, let's look at some patients who did the three days of Wenstrol. Um, the dosage isn't too exciting, two milligrams per kilogram. So um, for yourself, that's you know, 20 milligrams. For me, that's about 17, 18 milligrams. Mm -hmm. um, and you did this for three days. You get your before and after labs. You're checking your SHBG. And if I'm someone who has complete androgen insensitivity, then my SHBG only drops by three to 7%. Yeah. So it's it's not a 0% drop, but at this point, the, the very potent androgen at lowering SHBG is having a minimal effect. Whereas if someone, let's just say in the general population did this, SHBG would probably not go maybe close to single digits. Yeah, um, it's certainly possible. SHBG is primarily produced from the liver. It's actually the same thing as androgen binding globulins that's produced in the testes, uh, mostly secondary to FSH. But um, it has a half-life of about one week. So if you really wanted to, I guess, uh, leverage this test to the maximum, you'd do seven days of sinazolol instead of three days. Or anything that uh, very strongly binds the androgen receptor in the liver. Again, you would want oral because it goes through first pass. 
and it has the most effect in the liver. Although uh, there's also studies on just seven days of stenozolol having um, significant adverse effects. So that's another reason why we don't do the test is um, oral stenozolol uh, is hepatotoxic. I believe it's associated with hepatic angiomas, even with quite minimal exposure. Yeah. So, you know, back in the day, people just went to the endocrinologist and just kept asking over and over and over again to be tested for androgen insensitivity <laughs> syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually they got savvy and that's why they invented CAG repeat testing. That's, that's yeah, the version of the um, story that I, I'm going to put out there. That's your Alice in Wonderland version. <laughs> um, speaking of Alice in Wonderland, um, one way that you can think of the uh, CAG repeat number, if you will, is the confirmation of the receptor. So if you remember... Um, if you took, uh, you know, a chemistry in college that you have a ligand and a ligand has a ligand binding site. There's also occasionally allosteric binding sites, but for the androgen receptor, let's say if you have the normal number of CAG repeats, you have 17 or 19, it looks normal like a oval, but uh, then it kind of changes to a square or a triangle or a different shape. So ligand does not fit. The block does not fit. Yeah, so like the the child putting the little square, trying to put it through the triangle hole, and it's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And in some cases, the, you know, in androgen insensitivity, talking about our Alice in Wonderland analogy, you may not have the relative strength of the androgen represent the same activity at the binding site. Mm -hmm. So this is the, you know, Winstrel or DHT, a very potent androgen, a lot of androgenic activity. Yeah, that one think. Yeah, that one called Parabolin fits just perfect over 25 repeats. So if you have over 25 repeats, then that's the way the algorithm goes. Yes, Um, and that was a joke, by the way. (laughs) It does not. Um, SARMs are interesting as well, uh, as they're obviously um, androgen receptor agonists or antagonists, um, but they are non-steroidal. Yeah, and there is the... SARM study, uh, which specifically we'll note one study, one person that involved a muscle biopsy. And we actually saw a down regulation of androgen receptors in the muscle, which is the opposite of what you see with just testosterone administration or oxandrolone administration. Um, Androgens seem to upregulate their own receptors, but with SARMs, or at least this one case with this one SARM and this one biopsy, uh, for whatever reason, we saw the inverse opposite effect. Yeah. So the takeaway should not be always do a test base with your SARM cycle. It should be don't do SARMs. Um, But there is certainly therapeutic potential for SARMs, um, mostly due to their properties as an androgen antagonist in the prostate and in breast tissue. For individuals with prostate cancer and breast cancer, there is um, larger trials than one person um, for those. Yeah. And these are mostly in, you know, mice models. And something that I think is very entertaining to think about, or at least makes me chuckle, is that somewhere out there, there is a SARM that is a antagonist in muscle and an agonist in scalp skin. So you have small, bold rats who didn't get any positives, but only side effects. Yeah. Sustanchi. Yeah. They lost all their muscle and lost all their hair. Um, By the way, we do not know that Sustanchi is a SARM. We know that in some tissues, it is an androgen receptor antagonist. Almost all the studies are mouse studies. I guess you could say in like the functional health um, SARM hormone optimization community, their mascot should be Mickey Mouse because it's all mouse studies. It's all based on rodent data. <laughs> but, um, but I guess you give the analogy a lot of time that I really like about the, if we just compare DHEA to testosterone to DHT um, and think about a signal like pushing open a door. 
Yep. Uh, do you care to walk people through that? Yeah. Um, a heavy door that is a androgen receptor that is not very sensitive, it is very difficult to open. In the room, you can have a different number of doors. That's the density of the androgen receptor that we were talking about. It can be upregulated with testosterone. That's why you know you have more testosterone. That's that positive feedback mechanism. Um, and that uh, is one of the main reasons why in uh, young children, uh, you know, a two-month-old, a relatively high amount of androgen can help, um, you know, you have uh, increased secondary sexual characteristics even very early on in newborns because they have that spike in androgens that helps increase the density of the androgen receptor. I don't need to rabbit trail too much on that, but to continue with the analogy, you have the heavy door, that's high CAG repeat, then you have a medium door, medium CAG repeat, and then you have a very light door, a tiny hollow core wood door. Even a mouse could open it. DHEA might be that mouse. And a lot of women with PCOS, there's mosaicism. Um, and humans with two X chromosomes, there are two androgen receptors and two CAG repeats. And in PCOS, especially in the ovary and the skin and in, in scalp skin as well, the more sensitive androgen receptor is almost always the one that is active. In those corresponding tissues. So you yep. have the same CAG repeat, the same androgen activity in the ovary, same androgen activity that you have in your scalp skin. So it's sort of you know, a very unfortunate setup, but that's the way that it tends to kind of shake out. Yeah. So to continue with that analogy, you have DHT, that is a strong androgen. That's like world's strongest man, Thor or um, Brian Shaw, someone like that. They can't, they're strong enough to punch open that door. That's why you see some individuals that are on 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. They have less of the world's strongest man. They just have normal guys, testosterone. Um, you know, DHEA, that might be a baby or a mouse. Um, that might grow up to be testosterone, but <laughs> it is not testosterone uh, to start with. But it's strong enough, at least in the liver, to decrease SHBG, especially in individuals with very high SHBG. In fact, I think we used to say DHEA is just a supplement, but um, prestrone at some point, I believe even in the U.S., was used to treat um, low libido in females. Yeah, yeah, and in androgen insensitivity, that that DHT, which is like you said, Brian Shaw, world's yep. strongest man. Uh, if you don't have the sensitivity, I mean that that door is proportionally stronger and harder to open, so the DHT can be behaving like a child. It's not going to help with secondary sexual characteristics in someone with androgen insensitivity. Uh, so DHT certainly won't make you childlike or more youthful. Uh, it perhaps the opposite if we think of things like hair loss, definitely prostate growth. Um, but I guess too much DHT at the amygdala could make your impulses more childlike. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, and it's actually in the prefrontal cortex as well uh, could be. So the ideal situation is not high DHT. Um, the ideal situation is that whatever combination of androgens, whatever androgen cocktail or pool that you have, that that is strong enough to normally open receptors at a um, medium physiologic dose in all tissues, or depending on your goals, perhaps slightly more in some tissues, like uh, your muscle in your body, and slightly less in some tissues, like the uh, skin on your scalp. All right. So now actually getting into the research on the CAG repeats. Um, so sexual function, testosterone replacement therapy, we have a little snippet here, and important to note that some studies show no correlation. So in each of these categories that we sort of go through, it is sort of weak 
um, preliminary data. It's not conclusive. 10 years from now, it may be totally different. Um, but in individuals with a CAG repeat length longer than 25, they were found to have a higher frequency of hypogonadal symptoms based on the Adams questionnaire, which includes things about energy, libido, um, some depressive symptoms. Um, and that was even with normal testosterone levels. So testosterone levels in the conversion here would be above 340 uh, nanogram per deciliter. So even in a, a eugonadal state, and maybe this is 350, which is still kind of a, a yeah. low testosterone level, but normal. Um, that was compared to people who had CAG repeat length less than 22. Yep. And, and the average CAG repeat length, um, let's just kind of peg it at 20, um, just so people can keep that in mind. So if 100 people go get them, maybe it's 20, 21. Varies based on ethnicity, but you kind of think of, okay, 25 is well above average. Uh, if somebody is at 16, they're well below average, more sensitive to androgens. Yeah, and this is hard to track over time, but a lot of CAG repeats, or uh, in general, a lot of trinucleotide repeat conditions, the pathologic condition in this case would be Kennedy's disease or spinal bulbar mus muscular atrophy, which I, it, there's like partial and full, so partial could be 35 or 40, so there's different cutoffs for that. But a lot of these conditions tend to increase over time. One of the theories that could potentially be happening, um, not necessarily related to the study, is that um, over time, as there's uh, way too many world wars and way too many um, unnecessary deaths of even teenagers, um, people that volunteer, at least, or people that are drafted and then go to the front lines, perhaps they have a lot of that androgen activity in the amygdala and in the prefrontal cortex, and they die before they reproduce. So perhaps the average number of repeats is increasing, kind of hard to say. The uh, like uh, One of the potential, I guess, negative feedback mechanisms is if you pass it on to a female and she has PCOS and, and ovulatory cycles and reproduces less, which with modern technology, I don't think would be the case. But perhaps 100, 200, 300 years ago, these females with PCOS would ovulate less. Um, perhaps they'd have other secondary sexual characteristics that are more virilized and reproduce less that way um, via natural selection. That's not really happening as much. So perhaps these um, are balancing out more now, but it's kind of hard to say. That's more sociology. We're not sociologists. Go see uh, your family sociologist for official <laughs> advice on that. Uh, yeah. regarding, regarding the takeaway from this specific study, if your total testosterone is above 340 and you have symptoms of low testosterone, Perhaps it's due to a less sensitive androgen receptor, but perhaps it's due to dopamine, perhaps it's due to low estrogen, perhaps it's due to other neurotransmitter hormones. Yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of other factors to look at before jumping straight to testosterone as a, a root cause, uh, which it can be in some cases, but not every case. Yep. We uh, just make sure everybody's total T is at least 1,000 before considering other causes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then... Looking at the effects of actual testosterone replacement, so let's say one of these guys does come in, they have the you know, positive Adams questionnaire, they've got a low testosterone. Um, it looks like the improvements in just specifically sexual functions, so erectile function, libido, et cetera, are better in those who have shorter CAG repeat length. So it, intuitively, this kind of makes sense if you think of short CAG repeat length, more sensitive testosterone or more sensitive to testosterone, mm -hmm. um, or it could be a you know, sort of a time effect where they realize more of those benefits up front, because we know some of the data on TRT, people will continue to see some improvements all the way up to 12 months. I mean, I mean, in terms of how people feel immediately, 
you know, probably within three months, you kind of know, assuming that you have, have gotten the dose correct. But then things like you know, lean body mass will continue to change. Um, erectile function can continue to improve all the way up to that 12 month mm-hmm. mark. Let us know how your discussion with your uh, PCP or endocrinologist goes when trying to use this data as explanation for your TRT plus and synthetic androgen. So yeah, just let us know in the comments for that. That'd be great. Um, interestingly, you would assume that anyone with uh, Kennedy's disease or spinal bulbar muscular atrophy, they probably just, um, you know, try whatever strong androgen or non-steroidal androgen receptor agonist that they could find, right? Yeah, you would think intuitively. No, um, doesn't but, appear to be the case. Yeah, preclinical data. Um, so again, this is uh, Mickey Mouse Mickey Mouse data. Can we coin that term now? It is Mickey Mouse it data. Is, it's off uh, patent yep. or trademark. Yep. Um, so yeah. It's the official trademark. It's the unofficial official trademark. The official sponsor of preclinical data. Health podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, they gave these mice uh, Lupron, and basically it's an antigen or a, a GnRH antagonist. You're going to see um, basically no level of circulating sex hormone that's significant. And it, it binds actually, the GnRH receptor so strongly that it deactivates it. Yeah, it breaks the but, feedback. Yeah, just think of it as yeah, castration. Yes. Yeah, in simple terms. Chemical castration. So there you've you got go. no testosterone, but then muscle weakness improves or these mice get stronger. Mm-hmm. So obviously this is going to cause other problems in humans, but it's interesting to see something was like, okay, let's take away all the androgens so that the muscles function better. Like it, it's very counterintuitive. It's a, a really interesting study there. So, and while we're talking about Kennedy's disease, um, above 40 repeats is considered pathologic, but even in things like, you know, 35, 37 repeats, you still see the disease emerge, it just happens at a, a later age. Yeah, um, that's a good summary. Um, some of the things we talked about when uh, thinking about uh, like the, the high CAG repeat phenotype is, could you design the perfect ligand and would you use a steroidal agonist? Would you use a non-steroidal agonist like a SARM? And also for those individuals, could you design a perfect SARM? Because um, one of the main reasons why there's not a whole bunch of studies in this patient population with very st- strong classic synthetic androgens is the side effects. Yeah, I mean, if you could use another vector, like let's say you do want, in this specific case, you want an antagonist in the muscle because the longer CAG repeat is creating a, a toxic protein folding that's actually pathologic. And a toxic you could have a Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you could have an antagonist in the muscle and then use another um, vector like something through perhaps myostatin mm-hmm. to offset that effect, but you still want to have plenty of you know, androgen signaling or dopamine signaling for things like energy, motivation, libido. So it, it would be interesting to sort of put together the you know perfect, perfect formula there, the secret formula. Yep, the secret formula. I'm still uh, hoping and praying that Sustanchi turns out to be the perfect SARM. But we still <laughs> don't know that yet. Just Mickey Mouse data. Yeah. Um, as far as fertility, this is a, a quick one. Nothing really conclusive yet, even in populations who have you know, very, very, very low sperm or no sperm whatsoever, azoospermia. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't seem to have longer CEG repeats or shorter CEG repeats. Um, as far as prostate health, this is probably the most significant data to date, uh, at least where most of the research has been done. Uh, we have three studies here that all seem to sort of point the same direction. Um, and this is looking at risk of prostate cancer and risk of BPH or benign prostate hyperplasia, prostate growth. Yeah, this is one of the most significant effects based on human data. So this is a a concern for anybody with 
few CAG repeats that you're at higher risk of prostate hyperplasia at an earlier age. And given that we know that uh, you know something like 50% of 80-year-olds and 90% of 100-year-olds have prostate cancer, it's a matter of time. You don't want it to grow too fast. Again, you think about not just total androgen pool, but total androgen pool in the context of your androgen sensitivity in the prostate. And if that cancer will grow so fast that it's not able to have checkpoints and you're worried about senescence and essentially you're worried about prostate cancer growth. I know I'm certainly worried about prostate cancer growth. The first time we filmed this podcast, it went into a huge rabbit trail. So I'll try not to do that. <laughs> um, but uh, that is one of the uh, delineating factors for uh, CAG repeats. And if you look it up and, you know, that in the clinical literature, that's one of the main things. Yeah. So it's not the end all be all of will you develop you know, prostate cancer, or will you develop an enlarged prostate with time? There's a lot of factors that go into that. Uh, a lot of these patients are obese or have diabetes, insulin resistance, and, and that insulin and those growth factors are feeding the growth of the prostate. Mm -hmm. um, you know, perhaps these people have sleep apnea, um, and, and that's why they're having to also get up and, and urinate at night. So there's a lot of moving parts there. Um, yeah, there's a 50% chance I have my mom's dad's X chromosome, and a 50% chance that I have one of my mom's mom's X chromosomes. So do some math and look at what that individual's prostate health history is. Um, and that's a pretty good estimate. And same thing for um, the effects on the scalp as well. Yeah. yeah it's, it's probably one of the better arguments regarding the genetic basis of you get the hair of your mom's dad. Yeah, it's certainly plausible. Yeah, again, multifactorial sugar-sweetened beverages, all bets are off. Uh, that's associated with uh, hair loss. Yep. I won't say too much, but we should tax them more. They should be more expensive. People love it when we say that. Yeah. Um, moving on, something you can take to heart, cardiovascular disease. Uh, shorter CAG repeats uh, associated with more severe coronary artery disease, but not more severe risk factors. So yep. they don't have worse cholesterol. They don't have worse blood pressure. They don't have worse insulin sensitivity, higher A1Cs. But with the same risk factors, you see a higher, I guess, uh, max percent stenosis, total stenosis score, CADRADS. Mm -hmm. um, and this is something that is, you, you can sometimes see this in high androgen exposure. Yep. At younger ages, people with extensive coronary artery disease. Think Dallas McCarver. Dallas yep. McCarver, for example. But not every bodybuilder gets uh, coronary artery disease. And there's sort of a mystery protective factor uh, that maybe 5% of people have where they just, they have clean coronaries despite all these risk factors. You'd expect them to develop heart disease. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to bet my life that I'm in the 5%. I, I consider myself at probably the 95%. Yeah, um, the 5% that have Piana man genes, uh, probably not worth betting on that. Um, but yeah, again, uh, thinking about the mechanism of action of why that happens, if cholesterol and the other factors are the same, it's not due to an androgen's upregulation of HMG-CoA reductase. Um, again, all androgens are reverse statins. So if you were on the androgen, you were on a lipid medication. Um, there, that's the public health. Uh, do with that information what you will. That's the public health um, knowledge for today. But um, it will also, uh, I think about the sympathetic input or the fight or flight input on the heart, especially if you if your total androgen pool plus your sensitivity to the androgen, um, your sleep is worse, that there's more coronary artery disease, and then your uh, chronotropic input, your heart is beating faster, um, more relative ischemia. 
Yeah, that's a good way to look at it because um, that parasympathetic balance is, is very important. And we know things even like chronic work stress are associated with heart disease. Uh, certainly more sympathetic activity is going to move things in the same direction. Um, and then with bone, um, again, uh, this is something that we kind of have talked about in the past with SHBG and free testosterone versus total testosterone. Uh, but also with CAG repeats, it looks like when people have a longer CAG repeat, um, that they are potentially getting less androgen activity at the bone, um, perhaps uh, less long bone growth in puberty, perhaps less you know net bone density or, or lower peak bone density. Yeah. I think this is something that can probably be outweighed by you know heavy training over a long period of time with uh, axial mm-hmm. loading, you know, applying a lot of stress to the muscles and the femurs. Yep. Uh, not in terms of growing the bones longer, but in terms of getting the density to a, a higher peak. Um, but yeah, I mean, and we know that um, it's not just the estrogen, you know, which we think of women, menopause, bone loss, and, and hormone replacement. Again, that's depending on if you're the USPSTF or if you're someone who you know, gets the DEXs on these patients and measures them year after year. You have some very different opinions there. Yeah. Uh, but testosterone independently has some effect on bone density. Yeah. Our first shoot of this podcast, we talked quite a bit about Turner syndrome. It's very interesting because it's just one X chromosome, um, but, you know, females, if you will. And uh, it was, it's, you know, not uncommon or previously it was not uncommon to use strong androgens, even synthetic androgens to help uh, grow long bones during puberty, during childhood. Um, not done as much anymore, but it was certainly very efficacious to do that. Um, and again, a one X chromosome, so one uh, CAG repeat. So likely the efficacy of that was largely dependent on just uh, which CAG repeat length an individual with Turner syndrome happened to get on their one X chromosome. Yeah. And we know that the testosterone, you know, testosterone by itself, uh, minimal conversion to estradiol. So if you use a testosterone patch, even in uh, normal testosterone individuals, so, you know, testosterone levels below 450, which a 450 testosterone level, a lot of people aren't going to look twice at. It's considered very normal. Um, even at that level, a testosterone patch that doesn't convert much to estradiol is going to have a positive impact on the, the bone mineral density. Yep. So again, reinforcing kind of what we see with androgen activity equals more dense bones. I um, heard that you lose all of the benefit of all hormones within a year or two after you stop all those. You actually lose all the benefit of a lot of the healthy things you do within a time period after stop doing that thing. Mm-hmm. Why well, yep. use many word when few word do trick is what I kind of felt like I was saying there. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that you can keep in mind when thinking about that is um, you can't, there's no such thing as exercise in a pill, but if someone has very low testosterone, whether a female or a male, more androgen tends to help effort feel much better and will also help give them the tools to develop a movement pastime to last a lifetime, hopefully axial loading. Um, which is particularly beneficial for bone density, regardless of what medication or supplement regimen they're on. So that's kind of an aside. One other thing that um, came up that's not uh, in our template here, but I wonder about the effect of CAG repeats on thromboxane A2 activity. I would speculate that lower CAG repeats would increase that. So maybe that's where that uh, coronary artery disease, again, we don't know outcomes, but mm-hmm. if you are more pro-coagulatory with- Stickier platelets. Yeah, with a lower CAG repeat, then you would expect an equal amount of testosterone, mm-hmm. more of that thromboxane A2 activity. Yep. Thromboxane A2 is basically just making platelets stickier. 
And we do know that um, even compared to individuals with normal testosterone, if you castrate males, in this study, they had to castrate males because of prostate cancer, or they ended up, you know, benefit outweigh the risk, whatnot. Um, individuals that are profoundly hypogonadal have much less sticky platelets, less thromboxin A2 activity than eugonadal. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, we recorded that podcast quite some time ago. So if you're a, a listener and you're like, oh, I remember when we, they talked about that, thank you for being a loyal listener. Um, and then uh, we talked about Kennedy's disease. Uh, if we skip down to, uh, let's talk about some Russian athletes. That, that sounds exciting. What do we know about Russian athletes and CAG repeats? Yeah, we know that there's been a study done on a relatively large number of Russian athletes. Um, I believe there was a lot of Russian collaborators and another individual that did this trial, and they looked at um, controls, so normal Russians. They looked at um, Russian weightlifters, bodybuilders, and Olympic Sprinters. Olympic sprinters. There sprinters in there. Yeah, Olympic weightlifters and sprinters. And they compared performance, for example, 300-meter sprint time. And the results were surprising. They were basically the opposite of what you would think um, compared to the normal population. Much, Many more of the athletes had less sensitive androgen receptors, so more CAG repeats, especially the Olympic weightlifters, which is our friends uh, Derek with More Plates, More Dates and Zach Lander have talked about. Um, doping is very common in Olympic weightlifting and obviously bodybuilding too, and track as well. So we're certainly not accusing any of these athletes of doing that, but it would make sense that those that have less sensitive androgen receptors likely tolerate strong androgens much better. Yeah. So again, you can only speculate when you have a retrospective and associative studies like that. But um, in this case, something that I would consider to be in our expertise, uh, we can have some fun speculating about. So uh, maybe it's that they can tolerate higher dosages. Again, none of these athletes had failed a water test, but you know, if you listen to you know, Zach Thielander, you know that, that that doesn't mean a whole lot. That yep. People can subvert these things, especially if it's in the interest of your country that you're representing. Mm-hmm. Um, so they hadn't failed a water test, but possibly they tolerate drugs better. You know, They don't have the side effects. They're not having increases in hematocrit, increases in you know, cardiomegaly, things that would be concerning for someone to kind of pull the plug on, on that lifestyle. Uh, it's also possible that they improve less quickly. Um, we know that uh, increasing the loads you're working with, let's think in terms of weightlifting or even like sprinting, like your training volume. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are, let's say, responding better to testosterone acutely, like the individuals we talked about, sexual function gets better, faster, and they go on TRT, they're more sensitive. Uh, maybe these people get stronger faster as well, and their connective tissue just cannot keep up with that. Where if you're just making slow and steady incremental progress, you have a, a longer career. Um, and in something like, you know, weightlifting, I mean, there's a lot of people who are able to do very well, not just in their 20s, but, you know, 30s and even 40s. You see some strong men, for example, yep. that have very successful careers later on. Yeah, uh, they're the ones that survive, kind of. Kind of, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, another interesting thought I had about this is... Um, as someone who has particularly long femurs and grew until I was 19 or 20, um, you know, my growth plates took a while to close. If you have a more sensitive androgen receptor, some of the main effects of uh, androgens that go to the nucleus is that they will decrease the amount of estrogen signaling, including estradiol alpha signaling, which is one of the main things that closes growth plates. So I guess if you're lucky enough to close your growth plates really soon and have short femurs, you could be a better Olympic weightlifter, 
which is why something like 75% of them had um, particularly high CAG repeat numbers. Yeah, a really high percentage. And, and like we talked about, there tends to be a longer CAG repeat length in uh, Asian populations. And, and you see those populations do quite well in Olympic weightlifting a lot of mm -hmm. times. Maybe that relates to femur length. I don't know if someone's done a study on that specifically, uh, but it'd be interesting to see like the, the femur to total height ratio mm -hmm. uh, and then sort of seeing how that you know, shakes out when you get to that very, very elite yep. level. This is very convenient for me because I know being tall is not an excuse for being bad at the overhead squat, but it's because of my CAG repeat number. I thought it was because of your femurs. It's the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, this doesn't necessarily correlate with uh, body composition, um, at least when you're looking at like you know younger men, not people who are trained athletes and, and targeting a certain outcome. Um, some of the younger men, um, they actually tend to have more muscle mass with lower CAG repeats. People mm -hmm. with longer CAG repeats tend to have more fat mass. Um, what, oh, subcutaneous adipose tissue. I was trying to figure out what that abbreviation was. Like we said, this is a reshoot, so it's not exactly fresh in our mind. But yeah, total fat mass and subcutaneous adipose tissue tend to be higher uh, with CAG repeat lengths that increase. So... Again, unless you're specifically targeting bodybuilding, sprinting, or mm -hmm. weightlifting, uh, doesn't mean you're going to be shredded just because you've got longer CAG repeats. Maybe the inverse. Yeah, you need to... Uh, never mind, I won't say that. <laughs> uh, so I think we covered body composition. Um, we also mentioned that Olympic weightlifters indeed did have the highest number of CAG repeats. And in the sprinters, the ones that had the highest number of CAG repeats also had the fastest 300 meter time. Um, which again, is kind of hard, hard to know. Um, I know that when I ran track, I ran the 400 and 800 meters and I was relatively good, but I was certainly not Olympic caliber. So maybe I just needed to have more CH repeats and I would have been better. Shorter legs. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, thing, things are, things do not make sense in that study. So, uh, again, we can only speculate, yeah. but I, I it think seems it'd be interesting. pretty pretty likely that they just tolerate PEDs better. Yeah, to get the answer there, it would be interesting to see a, a prospective study, um, you know, somewhere like maybe uh, China where, I, again, this is me thinking, I don't know if this is the case, but where they sort of funnel people with athletic talents down a particular path, um, stratify them out by CAG repeat length, and then see, okay, uh, this person had a lot of potential when they were in eighth grade, you know, low CAG repeats, they were a gifted athlete, uh, but maybe they, they got injured, right? And maybe that's why they, they didn't make it to the elite level. Again, it, it'd be kind of interesting to see those things teased out in a, a prospective manner rather than kind of having to look backwards and then kind of guess the reasons. Yeah, plus they can just CRISPR that in whatever, they, whatever repeat length they want as they change the HIV resistance gene. CRISPR for everyone. Yeah, um, Google that for another fun time. Uh, CRISPR, China, HIV resistance. Yeah. But again, I, I think we want to really stress that this is preliminary data. It's not conclusive. You're not going to get prostate cancer just because you have a low CAG repeats. You're not going to the Olympics as a sprinter just because you have high CAG repeats. So yep. just kind of another piece of data for people to consider. Uh, like we said earlier, um, this should be available on our website to get this testing done. Um, again, you know, not necessarily because we're looking for a disease state. Uh, it's more of a novelty thing. 
Um, maybe it'll become more routine as uh, volume increases and you know price comes down as things do in, in healthcare or any business. But uh, for now, it, it can be a piece of data you can consider in mm-hmm. your total health picture from an androgen status. Yeah, and hopefully this has given you more balanced tools to develop a, a nuanced approach for health. This is certainly pretty deep on the iceberg if you've seen our iceberg podcast on testosterone and TRT. But, uh, and you know, your healthcare provider that prescribes your testosterone or that hopefully optimizes your natural testosterone, um, he or she does not necessarily have to be well-versed in this, but it certainly wouldn't hurt if they did know things about this because it can certainly affect therapy as you see the different responses to therapy. Uh, so perhaps uh, send them our way. Yeah, we would appreciate that very much. And for our listeners, thank you for your time. Thank you for watching. Uh, may God bless you with health and happiness. And now enjoy an outtake. Whereas your weaker androgens, um, uh, DHEA, maybe that's like an ant. Uh, or a, a butterfly. I like you've used a that analogy before. I like the butterfly. DHEA is the butterfly of androgens. It's very weak. Um, but it converts to stronger androgens like 5 uh, androstenedione or androstenone. So maybe DHA is the caterpillar, and it can convert into, instead of a butterfly, it can convert into a normal person. Yeah, more or less. <laughs> um, that's a, a, that would be an odd transformation. So maybe DHA is a child. Mm-hmm. That would be a more reasonable transformation. <laughs> yeah, DHA could be a, a baby. Yeah. A VO2 max is more like, uh, how long on the highway have you gone? Are you here? Are you here? A longer health span. And a better VO2 max is correlated with a shorter health span. So I would say if your VO2 max is in the elite category for your age, that means way more than um, an epigenetic clock that says you're 22, even though you're 52. Because you could speed up from, you know, your epigenetic age of 22 to 82 really quickly and get in a wreck. And you're like, but, but I was just going the speed limit. Yeah, you just clocked me at 65. Yeah. It's like, well, you were going 90 when you got an accident. But my average speed, what was your average speed on the road trip? How can you give me a ticket? Yeah, but my average speed, I was uh, epigenetic age of 22 for so long that I went for a full week of binging in Ibiza and then got AFib and a stroke, even though I was only 52. But my biologic age clock last week before I did that said I was 22. Yeah. Pretty easy to accelerate and decelerate the biological aging clocks. Think of it as how healthy you are today at this present time when you get this. Mm -hmm. Just because you got the flu and you got your test done when you had the flu, does that mean you really aged 10 years? Mm -hmm. No. So there's still a lot of noise out there. And maybe at some point these things are clinically useful. It can help us Mm -hmm. uncover things that are being missed in traditional medicine. But for right now, I, I don't see it that way. There's sort of a purely novelty with less evidence-based, although some correlation with actual age. Um, and I would put even you know, the CAG repeat testing uh, a notch above that in terms of something that's higher value with more clinical data. Mm-hmm.